0: You know, when we get uh, two services in the space of a few days, these guys are putting overtime. So, really do appreciate everything you guys have done to lead us in worship this morning. And I'm really glad that you're here to, to celebrate the start of our journey towards uh, Christmas. If you're a guest of ours, my name is uh, Craig, and I get the privilege to kick off our Christmas series entitled "Christmas United" with a message entitled "The Silent Wall." Now. A number of months ago, God laid, as I shared with you last week, a a theme on my heart with a very specific word to me where I really sensed the Spirit of God saying, Craig, the America after the election will be far more divided than the America before the election. Speak a word of hope. Speak a word of truth. Speak a word of challenge. Speak a word of comfort to my people. We've just heard a song that said, "Let there be light." The reality is, the darker the night, the brighter the light. The gospel of, of the gospel of Jesus—that's the truth. Jesus is light. The good news of the gospel bright, uh, shines brightest in the point of darkness. And I really believe we're in a challenging season as a nation, but that should be a word of hope and a word of encouragement to all of us because the gospel penetrates even the hardest places. The gospel is sharper than any two-edged sword and has the ability to bring hope and life. And so today, in a message entitled, The Silent Wall, I want you to think with me about the picture that the father saw as he was preparing to send his son. What did the father see? Now, when I think about the coming of Jesus, the, the picture that invariably was in my mind as I grew up was the picture of a white Christmas. Now, that may mean nothing to you because you pretty much get it every year, right? But this little boy from Wales, in a, living on the Welsh coast, it hardly ever snowed, and certainly not at Christmas. So one of the pictures I had in my mind when it came to Christmas was a white Christmas. The other picture that I had was This one over here, this nativity set. Now, let me just say that uh, I broke tradition with this. For 45 years, this nativity scene has actually graced the hill by the side of our sign outside if you come in through our northern entrance. And uh, this year, they decided to allow me to break tradition See Reese if you want to complain about that. But this is usually what I would think about secondly when it comes to Christmas. I would think about a white Christmas and and secondly I'd think about a scene like this. But what did the father see when he was preparing to send his son? To help us navigate that question, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And this is a passage that I believe speaks of one of the things the father saw when he decided to send his Christ into the world. Now, we're going to turn to a number of Scriptures today, uh, two of them especially, and so if you need a copy of the Scriptures to follow along with us, all you need to do is to raise your hands in the air, and our ushers would be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures, and then once you have those Scriptures, you can turn to page 1174. 1,174, and we're going to read this text from verse 11 through until the end of verse 18. I believe that what we have at the heart of this passage is what the Father saw as He prepared to send His Son, and more importantly, I believe that's what the Father wants us to see as we think about celebrating Christmas, but also sharing Christmas with the world. I think God wants us to see this. Not just us in here, but our nation. I believe this is the word of hope. This is the word of challenge that God wants us as his people to embrace. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore... And if you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. It's there for the purpose of expressing Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Because this is true, that God has saved you by His grace. This is the application of it. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles... By birth are called uncircumcised. And for those of you who may not know, Gentiles is the word there basically for the non-Jewish nations. It's just that blanket term. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles. And the mark of being a Jew was through circumcision. I hope I don't need to explain that for you. Very painful. But Gentiles at birth are uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why we sang about the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that brings people who were far away in closer. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. The verse that strikes me today is that verse in verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us one by breaking down in the flesh the barrier, and then Paul explains what this barrier is, the dividing wall of, of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. Torfik Salsa is probably not a name many of you, if any of you have ever heard of. Torfik Salsa is a carpenter, a woodworker. He molds, models, nativity sets out of wood. Salsa lives in Bethlehem. He's a Palestinian. And Salsa decided to portray what it's like for a Palestinian in Bethlehem to celebrate Christmas. And he decided to show that through his nativity sets. And this is what he did. I'm going into the darkness, but I will emerge in just one second. Salsa decided that he was going to portray what life is like in Bethlehem, celebrating Christmas by putting a wall right there in front of Jesus. He did that for a very simple reason. He wanted to show the world what it's like to celebrate Christmas in Bethlehem. You see, Bethlehem is surrounded by a 25-feet wall, and the Palestinians have written on the side, Merry Christmas, world, from the Bethlehem ghetto. This is how Christmas is celebrated in Palestine, he says, and he builds these nativity sets, sends them around the world with a wall separating the shepherds from Jesus and the wise men from Jesus. He says, basically, if Mary and Joseph wanted to fulfill the Scriptures today, if Jesus were to be born today, he wouldn't be allowed in, because there's a wall encircling Bethlehem. Now, Anti-defamation movements in the UK and in the US find this idea and this concept that he's making money off this, a cheap gimmick and nothing more than a publicity stunt. They point out the reality is if there wasn't need for a wall, Israel wouldn't have built one. The only reason they have built one is because Palestinians are, are actually going into Jerusalem and actually blowing the Jews up. That's why the wall is there. Whatever side you take with this, one thing is clear. When the angels appeared to the shepherds in the fields in Bethlehem, they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. To all people. We sing that Christmas carol, don't we? O little town of Bethlehem, how still... We see the lie. Bethlehem isn't still today. Bethlehem isn't peaceful today. Bethlehem is a symbol of a place that is divided and that is hostile. And the expression of the hostility is a dividing wall. Now I know what's going on here, I can't talk about a wall without many of you thinking of a Mexican wall, maybe even the blue wall with all of the recounts, but folks I'm not talking about the blue wall or the Mexican wall any more than I'm talking about the Berlin wall and the Great Wall of China. So for all of you politically inclined people here who wonder where I'm going with the salsa thing and the wall thing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this Mexican wall idea, all of these political thoughts, and I want you to throw it into the deepest recesses of your brain not to emerge for the next 35 minutes. Because there's a wall that is the symbol and is the substance of alienation of separation, of disunity, that is the real wall that God saw when He sent His Son into the world. And I start with the wall in Bethlehem in order to take you to a wall in Jerusalem, which is the symbol and the background and the substance to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, when he wrote this, had experienced hostility at a wall. And what he recognized is this hostility has been dealt with because the father sent his son and the son died. And Paul said, this changes everything. Now peace can be experienced. Where walls have been built up in Jesus Christ, they can come down. Now what I want you to do now is I want you to turn with me please to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. And we're going to read the the background to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. See, Paul had an experience at a wall that led him to express his story to the Ephesian community in a way that they would truly understand what it is that God wanted. And I really believe that in our nation today, God wants us to take our experience of Christ and express it in a way that is truly needed in our nation. Ephesians, uh, Acts, rather, chapter 21, and I want to read from verse 27. And this is the background to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wasn't writing of a wall in Bethlehem because there wasn't one. He was writing of a wall in Jerusalem because there was one. And he knew that in Jesus, this wall had come down. Let's read this. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stood up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. Now notice this. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere three things. Look at this. He teaches against our people. Hold on to this. Secondly, against our law. Thirdly, against this place. The second and the third accusation there against our law and against this place, against the temple, were the same accusations that were made against Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, okay? And it's in that passage that we read Stephen being put to death because he spoke of a gospel that was inclusive, a gospel that would not be confined to one space and one place in time. He was considered to speak against the temple. The, one of the last words Jesus spoke against the temple was in Matthew chapter 24. You, you remember that. The disciples are coming out of the, the feet out of the temple with Jesus, and they, they turn to Jesus and they say, "Jesus, look at this temple! Isn't it magnificent?" And do you remember what Jesus said? "Oh, pay no attention to this place because this place is coming down." Stephen merely communicated the message of Jesus. Paul merely communicated the message of Jesus, and the message of Jesus was an affront to those Jews. There were three accusations. Two of them were thrown at Stephen. This third one against our people, this is where we're going to go in the rest of this message, but let's read the rest of the text. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now the Greeks were allowed into the temple, the Gentiles were allowed in the temple, but there were certain places that they could not go. The temple got more holy the further in that you would actually get. They had previously, verse 29, seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed Notice that, please. They assumed it. It wasn't true, but they assumed it to be true. They assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, there's nothing wrong with Trophimus going into the temple. Here we have a model of the temple. Here we see the court of the Gentiles marked for you. And just to the right and to the left of the court of the Gentiles, you see the inner courts. And just by the side of the inner court, you'll see a wall. And there are gaps in the wall. That is the dividing wall. It stood about four and a half feet high. And on that wall, there stood these plaques. This is an original plaque that was found by an archaeologist in 1871. And that plaque says this. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow so you get the picture here i hope i'm going to read on in a second but i want you to visualize this and so i'm going to go into the into the depths of the darkness again and i will re- emerge That's right. There we go. So there was a wall in the temple. And the idea here is is really simple. The temple gets more holy the further in you get. And if you're a Gentile, and you go into the holy place, you couldn't go further than the wall. And on the wall, there was a sign. There were 13 of these plaques equidistant along the wall, reminding anyone who wasn't circumcised in their flesh that they were not allowed to go beyond there. And more than that, the Romans had actually given the Jews permission to murder, to kill anyone who comes in. This is uh, Kena, taking a non-Jew, beyond a particular dividing point in the temple, the dividing wall, was such an important breach of Jewish law that the Romans even permitted Jewish leaders to execute violators of the law. You're getting the point. There's a wall. And this wall is there to keep certain people in, the top people in, and the second class people out. Let's read what happens. This is the accusation. They accuse Paul of taking Trophimus beyond the wall. This is what happens, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Now this is huge. They dragged him from the temple and they closed the gate. Why? To keep people out? No. There is basically the teaching that they were not allowed to spill blood in the temple. They closed the gate in order to keep Paul's blood, which was about to flow, from entering into the temple. If the blood entered into the temple, they would defile themselves. They were intent on murdering Paul, and they took everybody out, closed the gates to make sure that just as they would murdered Stephen, so they would murder Paul, and when his blood spilled, it would atone for his sin, not theirs. They closed the gates. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He, ran, uh, he at once took some of the officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd where the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers. And when they, the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, if you remember the, the picture there I put on of the, of the temple, on the right-hand side, there was this like castle-like structure. That's the Antonia Fortress. That's where the Roman soldiers would have been. They would have run down the steps and basically gone out to where everybody was rioting, where there was this uproar, and they step in. They step in, and this begins the passage of transfer from Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, where he would be put in chains, where he would write a number of letters. One of those letters is Ephesians chapter two, and in Ephesians chapter two, he is recalling this story. Now, how do you think, how do you think the Ephesians would have felt when they heard this? How do you think Trophimus an Ephesian, would have felt Going back to Ephesus and saying, you're not going to believe this, but Paul has been arrested. They would have said, what for? And he said, because they thought that Paul took me beyond the dividing wall in the temple. But did he? They would have said. No, Trophimus would have said. He didn't. You see, Paul's practice was to do to the Gentiles and with with the Gentiles what he needed in order to win Gentiles to Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And to the Jews, he said, I become a Jew in order to win the Jews. These purity regulations needed to keep himself holy were were a thing of the past for Paul. The reality is, in Christ. All of these requirements were met. In Christ, he stood right before God. Paul only was going to the temple to honor a commitment as a Jew in order to try and win Jews. There's no substance to this this at all. So how do you think Trophimus felt? He would have felt gutted. He would have felt awful. But what does Paul do? Paul uses this negative experience at a wall. In order to remind these Ephesian Christians that in the church of Jesus Christ, God's people are not Jews. God's people are not Gentiles. God's people are Christians. See, what Paul is basically saying is that in Jesus, racial segregation is a thing of the past. It's gone. Once and for all. Now, the real question is, how could Paul as a Jew arrive at such a radical conclusion? You see, because the truth is, even though in Acts 21, Paul didn't take Trophimus beyond the wall, in reality, in his heart, Paul was already there. In Paul's eyes, you see, in Jesus, the wall was gone. How could Paul arrive at such a radical conclusion? Because the fact is, Paul may not have demonstrated the oneness that he felt because of Jesus with all humanity by taking Trophimus through the wall, but in his heart, he was already there. In his heart, they were right. Paul did blur the lines between the elitists and the second-class people. Because of Jesus, there is no war. Because of Jesus, racial segregation is a thing of the past. But how does he get there? And how do elitists today get there? How does a nation that is divided on so many levels where there are so many walls, how do we get there? America is a divided nation. How do we get there? We get there the way that Paul got there. Verses 15 and 16. Tell us, Ephesians 2. How do we get there? By, that word by in verse 15 is the explanation of how Paul gets there. How is it that out of two, Jew and Gentile, there is now one? This is how Paul says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its command and regulations. In Christ all the standards of the law are met. His purpose was to create in himself, look at this, one new humanity... Out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. How did Paul get there? Paul got, got there by recognizing what the cross did. And you have to remember Paul's story. Paul was on the side with the Jews as the church started, he was actually standing there, irony of ironies, holding the coats of the men who picked up the rocks and executed Stephen. And then he sets about purging the Christians out wherever they're found, and it's on his way to purge the Christians to Damascus that Jesus Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, Saul realized that this Jesus who was was supposedly dead, now is alive, and then he came to the conclusion that Jesus' death changed everything. He's on the wrong side. Everyone was equal in Christ. And Paul gets to this point where he realizes that through the death of Jesus, I love this, one new humanity was created. I can't emphasize enough how important this is. This word new is the word kainos. It means fresh or new. It's a new in kind, not a new in time. It basically talks about a never-been-seen-before type of new. He created one new humanity. Are you seeing this? In a culture that was divided on racial lines, He says, Jesus Christ's death not only blurred the lines, it removed them and created one new people. From two became one. All too often in the church, we talk, don't we, about because Jesus died, I am a new creation. Folks, a new creation is personal. The new humanity. Is communal. If the new creation is personal, then the new humanity is communal. According to Paul we don't just have a new creation but we also have a new never been seen before humanity in other words we cannot talk about salvation for me unless we talk about salvation for us. We cannot talk about one personal without talking about two communal and and if we only ever talk about what God means for me then we have done the death of Jesus a complete injustice because in Jesus one new New, radically new never been seen before humanity is on display and where is it right here right here and if we all, all we ever talk about with the cross is how we can have a relationship with God then we've missed it Paul says because Jesus died the elitist tendencies that I had the created animosity towards you have been nailed to the tree with Jesus. This war, Paul says, has come down. You know, too many people go to a church and they'll say, not enough black, not enough white, not enough Asian, But the reality in the church of Jesus Christ is you shouldn't be going to look for a church where people look like you. You should be going to a church where people look like Jesus. In Jesus, walls come down. And all too often when we hear this idea of a wall coming down, the separation that divides one person from another one, when we think about it coming away, we feel anxious. Oh, what does this mean? What we need to realize is that God is a God beyond every culture, and yet He's within every culture. Our faith is a supercultural truth. That is, get this, enhanced when walls come down, not threatened. I know walls make us feel safe, but in the gospel of Jesus, walls come down. And when we allow walls to come down, walls that separate us, walls that keep us at arm's length from another person, then our faith is diminished, not enhanced. Some of the greatest blessings that there can possibly be is when I relate in Jesus to people who are nothing like me because then I get to see how big God is. The reason some of us are so bored with our faith is because we're living behind a wall. And we're afraid to push it down. But the minute we push it down, oh, then the heat gets turned up, because now the God in other cultures now has to speak to me, and He does speak to me, and I'm challenged by it. I've said it before, I'm not very rhythmic. Anybody who stands around me will realize in the worship, I don't move very much. On Thursday, if you were here for the Thanksgiving service, Ivan led this kind of African song, and then it got to the point of dancing, and Vipka looked at me, my wife, and she said, you want to dance? And I'm like, yeah, fat chance of that. (laughs) But I can't be around Latin Americans and see them move without realizing, well, maybe I need to do a little bit more than move my hips. In the same time, I I can't be around African-Americans and Africans and experience how as a culture group, they have just persevered during suffering and not be challenged to do the same thing. Because that's God in them. You can't be around Asians and not be inspired by their humility. Asians don't talk about the Jesus on a white horse. For Asians, their idea of Jesus is the one who picks up a towel and washes feet. You can't be around Asians and not let that inspire you. You can't be around Americans either and not be inspired by this never-say-die die attitude, this pioneering spirit that never believes that an obstacle can't be overcome. In having a German wife, I have to say this, you can't be around a German without realizing that that engineering mentality that dot every, dots every I's and crosses every T is a really good thing too. See our faith is enhanced when walls come down. It's not threatened. See, in a divided land, as it was when Jesus was born, Jesus modeled stepping in and living out. And after Jesus died, Paul, someone who was of the elitist order, realized wow, the implication of this is huge. Now, Trophimus, you are my brother in Christ. How did Paul get there? He got there because he realized that the death of Jesus is the great level. Secondly, through Jesus' death, I love this too, peace was established. Over and over again in Ephesians, uh, seven times in Ephesians, we'll read about peace. Some people say eight. Paul likes this word, peace, 43 times. He uses it in his writings. I wish I had time to do this, but I really don't. If you were to go home and you were to do a word study in the New Testament of the word peace, you would see how it comes up at every strategic juncture. Every strategic juncture. Peace is a favorite word of Paul's. It's a favorite concept of the entire scriptures. Peace doesn't just speak about the absence of conflict. It speaks about the shalom, the reign and rule of God. The first word that Jesus speaks to his disciples as he appears to them, peace. Paul writes about the the gospel of peace. He talks about the rule and the reign of God being driven by peace over and over again. And in this text and through his writings, we discover that there are three experiences of peace. It begins with this idea of having peace with God. We see it there in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16, but we see it again in Colossians 1 verse 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How did Paul get there? Because he realized what happened when Jesus died is that Jesus makes it possible for me to live in peace with God. That's where all of this begins in peace with God. Have you got peace with God? See the idea of peace is built on the idea that sin is an affront to a holy God and therefore the death of Jesus averts the wrath, the anger of God that could be righteously poured out on sin because of Jesus. We can have peace with God. Have you got peace with God? It's very easy to do so. All that needs to happen is you need to look at this text in Ephesians 2 and say, Father, I thank you that what Jesus has done means that your anger has been placed on Christ and that now I can be your child and new creation in Christ Jesus. Let that be for me. It's that easy. Secondly, we can all experience peace in our hearts. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can know peace in your heart. Thanksgiving and uh, the holiday season is a great time to remind ourselves of that, isn't it? Invariably, a number of you will have spent holiday the holiday time around a person in your family who you could call an EGR, an extra grace required person. (laughs) They're the type of person who does everything they possibly can to make sure that you are frustrated, not peaceful. (laughs) But in Jesus, we can know peace in our own hearts, and that leads to, thirdly, experiencing peace with other people. I love this, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, and in case we didn't get the point, he also says, as far as it depends on you. Because sometimes you do everything possible, and it doesn't depend on you. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I believe that what the church needs to model in this season, in this nation's history, is people who are willing to model not just what it means to be a new creation, but a people willing to model what it means to be a new humanity. Folks, we cannot have the new creation experience without the new humanity expression. If we don't have the new humanity expression, we have to ask ourselves whether we truly had the new creation experience. Because the one leads to the other. Folks, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. What I like about this idea of Jesus making peace is that it's what you call a present perfect participle. Sorry for that. What does that basically mean? It basically means this, that Jesus continues to make peace for the fallen children of Adam who will, will, will respond by repentance and faith. Christ's peace is not automatic. The church, it is available. It's present, perfect. That basically means it's right here for every single one of us. But we have to accept it. I want to introduce you to a couple who serve in our Monday evening celebrate recovery ministry. They head up our greeters and ushers, Keith and Jan. A little while ago I heard their story, and it's an incredible story, but the incredible stories are also painful stories. Just like Paul's experience at the dividing wall led to an incredible expression that has meaning to us today. So too, Jan and Keith's story is a painful experience that I believe can be life-giving to people today. So I asked them to share this story. It's a story of how possible it is for people who are new creations in Christ Jesus to allow walls of hostility to be built up to such a degree that the only thing you think you can do is to run away. And how? When a person avails themselves... Of the peace of Christ that isn't automatic but it, that is there, these walls can come down and reconciliation can happen. This is an incredible story. Cast your eyes to the screen as you watch it.
1: I first met Jan in August of 1976 and three months later we were engaged and seven months after that we were married. So things went really, really fast, and we thought we were just going to have the perfect marriage because everything was so wonderful.
2: And it was, to start with. Um, We were blessed with two beautiful daughters and had great jobs, but it didn't take long for us to have differences in terms of our financial thoughts and patterns, and then we started arguing about that and then there was anger and resentment that kind of crept in along with that walls just went up and communication broke down you
1: know one thing leading to another and and my tactic when that happens is silence so i put up the wall of silence i didn't like fighting uh, i didn't want to do that i didn't think christian couples fight so we just stopped
2: communicating it was lonely we would come and go and literally pass by each other and hardly even acknowledge or make eye contact. It was a very lonely place to be.
1: I made a lot of mistakes too, a lot of mistakes. All thinking that, you know, ah, oh, I'm the head of the household and this is the way to do it and I'm making all the good decisions and she's making the bad ones. Little did I realize, boy, was I making some whoppers myself. We, we sold the house that we were living in when the divorce came. We split the proceeds, and we split all our worldly possessions. Uh, Talked about them and said, all right, you take this, and I'll take this, and we both went our separate ways. We each had a little bit of feeling for each other. It hadn't died entirely. It wasn't great, but we had a little bit, and we both had a deep sense of guilt. We shouldn't have done this, this is wrong. Divorce isn't a good thing, so we just decided Jan's suggestion she said let's get remarried so I said yes and we did in fact we remarried on the 21st anniversary of our first marriage
2: here's the thing we did not fix what was broken the first time and so it was not even three short years after our remarriage that things started to go bad again we were in that same dark place that we were before and we could not see any way out I learned about a program at Central called Restoring the Gift. And uh, it's for families, or for couples, who are struggling in their marriage or just want to make it stronger. And uh, so I went and talked with Keith about that. And we agreed, that was one of the things we agreed on, to meet with a couple who was leading that group. And so we sat down with them and uh, literally said, it's going to take a miracle for this to work.
1: But God is the great restorer, restoration project. And slowly through that program, it wasn't fast, it wasn't instant, but slowly through that program, the feelings started to come back and get stronger and stronger. And we learned some things, how to break down some walls, some barriers, we did that. And God just blessed us like we can't believe. Everything has changed. you know, we we share feelings like we've never shared feelings before, and we're not we don't feel uncomfortable to approach the other person and say, you know, I got a problem with this. We've got to talk this out. What can we do?
2: I actually look forward to seeing him now. <laughs> if he's gone and comes home, I it's like I'm happy that you're back. <laughs>
1: As I said before, the, the finances were the starting point to, to where it happened, and now we just realize that, hey, we're not always gonna think alike, but we can talk about it, we can compromise. Now we can both look at, we keep it on the computer, and we can look at it and say, oh, okay, we've got this much here and this much there. It just may, it's freeing to know that we've shared and we, we've communicated these ideas and thoughts together. and No secrets anymore.
2: We don't feel like we have to hide anything. And you know, I finally had to say sorry to God. I had to say sorry for not trusting you with this all those years ago, because I think a lot of pain and suffering could have been avoided had we done that. And, uh, but God doesn't waste our pain. He uses it and that's why we're here doing this right now. We wanna take this and wrap it all up, our story and give it back to God and see what he can do with it because he's the one that gave it to us. He's the one that fixed it for us.
0: You know, when a person experiences peace with God, that is the starting point for living in peace with themselves and then peace with other people. You may be here today, and you may well be in that spot in your marriage, in a, an important relationship. And if that's where you are, then Romans twelve eighteen. as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But more important than that is our mandate as a new humanity, as a people who have been made new creations individually and collectively. We model the new humanity. The the mandate that God gives to us in this broken world is to go out there and model what it's like to live at peace with those people who are so different from us. Because in Jesus, walls come down. Walls between black and white, rich and poor, male and female, are no more because Jesus died. I've asked the team if they would sing a song that is an anthem for what we believe God wants to do in us to prepare us for life outside of here. It's called We Will Break Dividing Walls. As this song is being declared, it won't be sung as it's being declared, just relate to this in your own experience and say, Father, as far as it depends on me, May I live at peace with everyone. And may I declare the newness of my life as a result of what Jesus has done. Listen to this being sung and relate to it.
3: We will break dividing walls. We will break dividing walls. We will break dividing walls in the name of your son we will break dividing walls. we will break dividing ones and we will be one you to do something if you would stand to your feet and just grab the hand of the person next to you <laughs> as a physical sign as a symbol of coming together and breaking walls let's sing this one more time together we will break dividing walls we will break dividing walls we will break and walls in the name of your son we will break Break dividing walls. And we will be what sing it out. We will break dividing walls. We will break dividing walls. We will break dividing walls. In the name of your son, we will break dividing walls. We will break dividing walls.
0: up to Christmas, we're just going to be celebrating the fact that we are one new humanity. Of course, we're going to invite people into the new creation that God calls them to, but Christmas is a time for celebration. So our encouragement to you through this week is go and celebrate the fact that God has made you one. One in your marriages, one in your families, one with your colleagues, one with everybody that God brings you to. And as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, and as we gather back next week, we have a gift for you because we've experienced the joy of Christ at Christmas. We want to give you opportunities to express that to the people you live around so they get to be a part of celebrating the, the good news of Christmas that we can be one. Also, Poetis, the gala, the deadline for registrations for that is on Wednesday. If you're interested in just going to see what God is doing around the world through Poetis, just know that that's Wednesday. But until then, until we meet again, go and live as the new humanity that we have become in Jesus Christ. Go in grace, go in peace, and may the God of peace go with you. God bless you.